Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to this week's uh, NDISC seminar. Um, before we get going, uh, I'm, I'll do the usual. I'm Eugene Goltz. I'm a uh, professor at Notre Dame and a principal of NDISC and, and the host of this semester's um, seminar series. Uh, the bookkeeping, whatever, the excitement, the advertisement is that we have one more seminar after this for this uh, for the rest of the semester. So one week from today, next week, we have uh, Lindsay O'Rourke from Boston College, um, who will be uh, speaking about foreign imposed regime change at 430, you know, same time, same place on Zoom. And uh, we hope you'll join us for that. Um, and of course, the semester ends promptly thereafter because we're on this crazy accelerated schedule, but NDISC will not forget you. Um, there will uh, likely be further communications from NDISC uh, after that. And certainly in the spring, we will return for another great uh, um, semester of uh, NDISC seminars that uh, my colleague Joe Parent will be hosting. So let's all look forward to that. Uh, but for today, we have a great treat. Um, we have uh, Jonathan Markowitz uh, uh, coming to talk to us. Uh, Jonathan's a, a professor or assistant professor at the School of International Relations at uh, the University of Southern California. I guess you can all see that um, on the screen. You've got these, this wonderful, pretty picture of the Arctic. Um, and uh, he's going to be talking to us about um, uh, his long-running, very interesting project on uh, uh, strategic competition in the Arctic and uh, how it allows us to understand theories of international relations. Um, uh, I know it's going to be one of his slides, but I'm uh, uh, very pleased to say that uh, uh, his book is just out on this related topic. I have a copy of it uh, upstairs, and um, uh, it's very exciting. Um, so he's going to be uh, sharing some of his results and some of his continuing new ideas. Um, uh, if you have questions, um, please feel free to raise your hand uh, in the participants uh, box of Zoom. Um, that will get you on the queue. And uh, I will uh, manage the questions um, after Jonathan finishes his talk by you know, calling on you one by one. And there'll be more directions for that later. So with that, um, Jonathan, take it away. Okay. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Gene, and, and thanks to everyone for showing up and for having me out here. Uh, so uh, I'm really excited to share this paper with you uh, entitled Arctic Shock, Utilizing Climate Change to Test Theories of Resource Competition. So as Eugene was saying, this uh, is a sort of article-length version of the book project, Perils of Plenty, uh, which just came out. And so both of these projects are motivated by this puzzle which is in a world of open markets where states can buy the natural resources they need, why is it that some states have a stronger preference to still militarily compete over the control of resource rents? In other words, if you can buy them, why do some states maybe still have a stronger preference to try and go and take them? And so this motivates the research question, which is when and why do states project power to compete over resources? So, Ideally, if we wanted to test theories that could answer this question, what we would procure is a gigantic laboratory. And in this laboratory, we would drop a set of states that were roughly equidistant from each other. And then we would drop, say, a Saudi Arabia's worth of oil and gas in between those states 
and we would go look and see which states went to go compete over those resources by projecting military force and which states didn't. Now, obviously, we can't do that, but we can look and see what happens if climate change does this for us. So this is a picture of the Arctic in 2004, and I want you to look at the level of Arctic ice coverage. So here it is in 2005, here it is in 2006, and then all of a sudden in 2007, there's a massive drop off in the level of Arctic ice. Now, I spent two years at Scripps Institute of Oceanography working with some of the world's leading climate scientists to verify that none of the existing climate models could predict this was going to occur. In fact, in 2007, those climate models suggested the Arctic wouldn't be free until 2100. After this event, climate scientists scrambled to update their models and realized, wait a second, the Arctic might be ice-free in a little, little as a couple of decades. And this is important because it is rapidly exposing vast swaths of oil and gas uh, in the Arctic. And this oil and gas used to be sitting under lots of Arctic ice and having it revealed really rapidly meant that the territory that was on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean floor, which was previously basically valueless, suddenly became very, very valuable. And so that gives an opportunity to see how states would react to that shock. And so Denmark, Canada, and the United States don't actually do very much in terms of projecting military force. In fact, the United States is dubbed the reluctant Arctic power because it doesn't really start to get more interested in projecting military force to the Arctic until after Crimea. And that's seven years after the shock. And this is, happens despite the fact that the United States is by far the most powerful uh, Arctic actor in terms of its power projection capabilities and its ability to project force there. But in terms of making Arctic specific investments, it doesn't make very many in the years immediately following the shock. In contrast, Russia makes massive investments and projects a lot of military power and does so right after the shock. And this is interesting because it wasn't doing a lot of this right before the shock. There's a big increase. And Norway, you would be surprised given that it's just a, a small country. It's just 5 million people and it's democratic and it's liberal. And most of the existing IR theories suggest it shouldn't go compete that hard over territory and resources. But Norway actually projects more power than any other states except Russia and more than any of the other democracies. And so part of the puzzle of this case is, well, why does Norway project more power into the Arctic than any other democratic states? And why does Russia project more power than any other state, despite being much less powerful than the United States? And so my argument in brief is that what states make influences what they take, or I should say what they want to take. And so the source of a state's wealth and income is going to influence the type of objectives that they project power, project military force to go and try and secure. And so Norway projects more power than any of their democracies because it's both more economically dependent on controlling natural resource rents and actually has the opportunity to do so. So it's one of the Arctic Five. Russia projects more power than all the other states because it's both autocratic and economically dependent on controlling resource rents. And so the theory suggests that states should have a stronger preference to go and compete over land rents, of which resource rents are just one type of category, when they're, one, economically dependent on land rents, or two, autocratic and have a stronger value for land rents. And this leads to two observable implications that I'm going to assess today. First, that resource dependence should then invest more in projecting power to secure additional resource rents. And second, that autocratic resource dependent states should invest the most, so more than any other type of state, in projecting power to control additional resource rents. So that just gives you sort of like a brief overview of what we're going to do. So for the remainder of the talk, I'm going to focus on defining the dependent variable or outcome of interest. 
Then I'm gonna give you a theory that's gonna explain variation in that dependent variable. And then I'm gonna talk about how I test that in the Arctic case and close with the contributions and implications. So first, define the dependent variable. What is power projection? I'm defining power projection as the deployment of military force beyond a state's borders. So whether that's a Russian icebreaker or a nuclear powered, uh, sorry, Russian nuclear powered icebreaker, a Russian bomber or Putin with a crossbow, if it's military force and you're deploying it beyond your borders, I'm calling that power projection. And so my dependent variable is a state's choice to pursue an exclusionary foreign policy which I define as the projection of power, so the deployment of military force to seek control over land rents, so resources, territory. So how do we actually measure an exclusionary policy choice given that we can't directly observe it? And I argue that we can look at how states react to shocks that expose resources, and specifically we can look at the level of investment they make. So think of this as a continuum of less versus more exclusionary and lower level investment would say, say a dog sled team and a higher level investment would say a nuclear powered icebreaker, for example, the more expensive and costly the investments and the more Arctic specific, the stronger the signal that this is the policy they're pursuing. And so we look at several different categories and we created data sets for each of these. One is icebreakers and ice hard warships. Second is Arctic bases. And we look at Arctic military deployments and these are all Arctic specific. And then we looked at claims. And so specifically, we looked at whether countries made fairly expansive claims and whether they then actually projected military force to back those claims. And we did those in the qualitative case studies. Okay, so next I'm gonna talk about the theory. So the causal logic of the theory is as follows. A state's coalition characteristics determines the state's type or policy preference which turns their policy choice. So the independent variable is coalition characteristics, intermediate variable state type or policy preference, and the dependent variable is policy choice. And so there are gonna be the argument that we're gonna focus on, recall, is that what states make influences what they take, or that the preferences of a ruler's governing coalition, so remember coalition characteristics are the independent variable, will influence its choice to pursue an exclusionary foreign policy. But first, what is a governing coalition? A governing coalition is simply the group of individuals a ruler relies on to stay in power. So if you're an autocrat or a Democrat, you still have a coalition of people you need to stay in power. And I think two independent variables are gonna shape what that coalition looks like. The economic structure of the state's economy and the domestic political institutions of the state. So first, in terms of thinking about the economic structure of the state's economy, you could think about states' economies as falling along a continuum of land-oriented versus production-oriented in terms of where they get their income. States that have economies that primarily rely on land are land-oriented, and states that primarily rely on producing goods and services are production-oriented. But you could also think about this as the difference between Gazprom and Google. Gazprom's business model is to control vast swaths of territory, extract resources from that territory, and sell it. Google, on the other hand, doesn't care at all about the physical control of territory. What they care about is hiring smart people to produce goods and services that you and I consume. Now, obviously, this isn't to say that Google doesn't seek rents too. Clearly, uh, if anyone's been paying attention to the news, they do. It just means that their business model doesn't really rely on territory. It relies on getting access to consumers through access to markets. And so whether your coalition is primarily land-oriented or production-oriented is going to condition how much you care about territory. 
Land-oriented coalitions are going to care a lot more about controlling territory, whereas production-oriented coalitions should care less about territory and should care more about accessing markets. Next, we focus on domestic political institutions. So you think about difference between autocracies or democracies, or essentially how broad or narrow the coalition of, of the state is. And so you have regimes that rely on popular support, they have broad coalitions, and you have regimes that rely on a narrow, small group within society, and they basically need tanks to essentially repress and keep everybody else who would like to be in power out of power. And so if you're an autocrat who relies on tanks, then you better have the money to buy off the people who are driving those tanks, and you better have the money to make sure you're the only person who can afford tanks. And what this means is it, it gives autocrats a stronger value for the political benefits associated with land rents. And that land rents have a special property and that they're militarily controllable and they're easier to monitor, extract, and deny to the political opposition. And so all regimes like rents and democracies are no different, but autocracies should have a, a stronger value for it because they should have a stronger value for making sure that they control all the income in society and that nobody else can access it. And, that, and for that reason, that should give them a stronger value for territory that is rich in natural resources or other types of land rents. So because of this, autocracy should have a stronger value for territory, all else equal, and democracy should have a weaker preference for territory. But to be clear, we're not saying that democracies don't like this stuff. They clearly do. It's just that it should be weaker. Okay, so if we put this on a two by two and think about land-oriented narrow coalitions we get in the Arctic Russia, the polar opposite would be broad coalition production-oriented, that's the US, Canada, and Denmark. And then think about Norway is broad coalition, it's democratic, but it's pretty land-oriented and that it's highly economically dependent on natural resource rents. Now, this last type doesn't actually exist in the Arctic in terms of a country that can actually make claims, but that would essentially be China. China's production-oriented, but it's fairly autocratic. It's got a very narrow co coalition. Okay, so we operationalize this using various measures of autocracy and democracy, but also area uh, experts. And in terms of looking at how land or production-oriented, since most of these states are pretty developed, they're not going to be that dependent on agriculture, so we looked at natural resource rents. But in other work, I've got work that looks at the countries dependent on ag agriculture. So if you have a high level of resource rents or as land oriented, if you have a low, you're considered production oriented. Okay, so based on the theory, Russia should have the highest level of interest in securing additional territory and resources. The US, Canada, Denmark should be the lowest and Norway should be somewhere in between. They should be higher than the democracies, but lower than Russia. Okay, so next we're gonna see like, do the theoretical predictions bear out in the Arctic case? But first let's talk about the case selection. So there's only five states that can actually legally make claims on Arctic resources. And because I'm interested, do you make your claims purely through international law, not gun diplomacy, or do you also back those claims by projecting military force to say the areas that you claim? And because of this, there's only five states that can actually make those legal claims. These are the states that I can look at to make that comparison. And so under the UN Law of the Sea Convention, these five states border the Arctic Ocean, so they can claim out to 200 nautical miles in terms of their exclusive economic zone. So they can claim all the natural resources in that easy. And if they can prove their continental shelf extends beyond that, then they can claim additional natural resources. And this is important because a number of the countries have overlapping easy claims. And so, for example, the United States and Canada have a claim in the Beaufort Sea in which their EZs overlap and they have overlapping claims over who gets to own those natural resource rents. Okay, so in terms of coding state type, remember the US, Canada, Denmark are, uh, and Norway are not autocratic, Russia is. 
but Norway and Russia are considered resource dependent. They're clearly above a 7.5% threshold, which is something that's been used in earlier work. Now, to be clear, 7.5% is not the total impact of resource rents in terms of resources in the economy. Because remember, rents are just profits. So for example, if Russia's at 15.5%, that's a highly, highly dependent state. So if you were to say how large, if you asked instead, not how large are the profits relative to Russia's economy, but how large would Russia's economy be if suddenly tomorrow it had no natural resources? The estimates vary between 50 and 70% of Russia's entire economy would disappear. That they essentially wouldn't have that income. And so this is a pretty conservative measure in terms of how economically dependent Russia is. Okay, so in terms of our theoretical expectations, remember the US, Canada, Denmark should be low, Norway should be medium, Russia should be high. Now let's go see whether the observed outcome matches the theory's expected outcome. But first we'll give you a little bit of background. So during the Cold War, the Arctic is a hotbed of geopolitical competition. So you see bombers circling the North Pole, submarines are playing cat and mouse underneath the Arctic ice. And so there's a lot of activity. But as the Cold War draws to a close, the Arctic is left kind of a frozen wasteland, particularly the areas on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean floor where nobody lives. There's not a lot of trade happening. There's not a lot of military activity. And this is precisely what makes it the perfect place to go and isolate what the effect of a rapid revelation in the value of territory is. Because there wasn't a lot operating there, it allows us to rule out a lot of potential confounding factors. Because the shock rapidly reveals natural resources, but it doesn't change a lot of those other factors particularly rapidly. And so recall in 2006 to 2007, in the summer of 2007, there's a big drop off. And so I date the shock as being in the summer of 2007. And I, we go two and a half years before the shock and two and a half years after the shock in terms of looking at the military activity events. And for the bases and icebreakers, we look 10 years in before and after because it takes longer to build those. But the closer to the shock, those things are announced and the closer the shock the deployments occur, the more informative it is for testing the theory. Okay, two additional trends are occurring during this time period. First, energy prices were getting a lot higher. And that's important because obviously it made controlling these natural resources a lot more valuable. And second, and relatedly, drilling technology was getting much better as was essentially the ability to find these natural resources because of advances in computational power meant that they could process the sonar returns off the bottom of the ocean floor and essentially process the signal from the noise. So suddenly, they can find these natural resources, they can access them, and they're not covered in ice anymore. And so this really increases states' incentives to go and control this territory. Okay, so how do states react to the shock in 2007? So as I said before, the liberals don't do much. And by liberals, I mean production-oriented democratic states. So Denmark sends dog sled teams. They send them to deploy the coast of Greenland once every five years, uh, but they were doing that before the shock as well. Canada talks a big game, like they're really going to project a lot of military force and build all kinds of bases and ice-hardened warships. And they said they were going to build eight of these Arctic ice-hardened patrol ships, only that's a digital rendering. They don't actually end up building those. Uh, in fact, it takes over a decade until they actually even allocate funding for some of these warships, and they don't finish them, and they're actually still working on some of these. A lot of them have been built now, but in the first five years after the shock, nothing, not much is done. The United States, on the other hand, uh, sends submarines occasionally to conduct ice, ice exercises. But like I said, until Crimea occurs, the U.S. doesn't actually engage in a lot of Arctic military activity, the occasional exercise, but they don't make any major investments in their bases or in their icebreakers. So, for example, three years after the shock, Bob Gates testified that the U.S. hadn't done too much in terms of planning. And 
when you realize that building an icebreaker often takes a decade, to say that we hadn't even planned for it, suggested how much of a priority this was uh, for the United States. And we can talk more about that during the Q&A. Okay, so in terms of theoretical expectations, the US can Denmark are low. That's exactly what we observe. Now let's go look at Norway. Norway, on the other hand, dramatically increases their Arctic military presence. They also increased their Arctic military exercises. They announced that the Arctic was going to become their number one foreign policy priority. And they moved their military headquarters north above the Arctic Circle. It's the only Arctic state to do this. They moved it into this old uh, Cold War era base. They refurbished it inside a nuclear blast-proof mountain. Uh, they also upgraded their force structure. So they purchased 48 F-35s. Now, to be clear, this is a dual-use asset. But we know from Wikileaks cables that a primary reason that Norway purchased these was because of their ability to operate in the Arctic, which is where they were focusing a lot. Uh, Norway also invested in uh, buying forages cruisers. So a lot of these they'd ordered before the shock, but unlike Canada, they actually followed through on building them. Uh, Canada doesn't actually follow through on building a lot of its ships. And they also started deploying these Aegis to the Arctic, and particularly around Svalbard, where they have disputed claims, which they weren't doing before the shock either. Uh, to give you an idea, like these are extraordinarily expensive weapon systems, especially for a country of 5 million people. This would be like if New York City, which has 8 million people, decided to buy their own Air Force and fairly capable Navy. Uh, Norway also invested in increasing its intelligence capacities in the region, investing in spy ships and improving their situational awareness. Okay, so in terms of the theoretical expectations, Norway should be a higher, and that's exactly what we observe. All right. But Russia projects by far the most military power. And so you might remember that right when the shock occurred, uh, Russia went and planted a flag on the bottom of the Arctic Ocean floor. And this was a publicity stunt, uh, but this was also backed by the projection of a lot of military force as well. And so that flag was planted uh, by Arthur Chilingarov, who is a member of the Russian parliament, but also of the ruling party. And this was essentially an orchestrated event. So right when this event occurred, the Kremlin also deployed bombers to the Arctic, uh, engaging in air-launched cruise missile drills, and they weren't doing it frequently before that. They, the Northern Fleet returned to the Arctic for the first time since the end of the Cold War in terms of conducting regular patrols and really bumping up their presence. There was a major increase in Arctic military exercises from Russia. All, the Russians also had made pretty expansive claims. Now, these claims date back to 2001 in which Russia made a very large extended continental shelf claim. That's what you can see there. They claimed about half the area that is not sitting within a state easy currently. And they essentially also claimed the North Pole. Now, before 2007, this claim kind of lay dormant because it was under solid ice. But after 2007, Russia started projecting military force to the areas it claimed like the North Pole. So it started conducting missile drills at the North Pole. It landed paratroopers at the North Pole and actually had them occupy it for several weeks. All this is just a way of essentially demonstrating that we care about this and that we're willing to project military force to back our claims. Russia also announced they were going to build a number of bases, but unlike the Canadians, they actually followed through on building fairly large capable bases. And this, all, this allowed them to maintain a much more continuous military presence there, both in terms of aircraft, but also ships, conduct uh, exercises with greater frequency. And if you look there, there's a, a picture of essentially all the bases that they either built or upgraded um, since 2007. So th they also put much more capable assets on these bases, whereas when Canada would build a base, they would put like a trailer with a couple of soldiers. When 
Russia would build a base, they would put much more capable weapon systems like the S-400, which is a pretty advanced uh, anti-aircraft missile system. And they also uh, put anti-ship cruise missiles on these bases. They also put 24 border portal on the Northern Sea route, allowed them to control traffic. And in fact, one of the ways that Russia seeks rents here is that they actually charge a toll for ships that pass along the Northern Sea route, even though that's definitely in violation of international law. Okay, so in terms of theoretical expectations, I thought Russia should be high, and that's exactly what we observe. Okay, but let's see, how do they actually behave in their dispute level analysis? Because we want to look at some process evidence and see if this is really about natural resources and these countries should be escalating their disputes. So this is the best map we have of states overlapping Arctic claims, but I think this map is basically unreadable. Uh, so instead I've broken this down into a table. And so these are the liberal diet disputes and by liberal, I just mean democratic and production oriented. So these are disputes in which both of the countries are democratic and production oriented. The closest that any of these states come to escalating any of their disputes militarily is Hans Island. This is Canada versus Denmark, and this is known as the Battle of the Bottles. So this is a half mile piece of rock that sits between Greenland and Canada. It doesn't have any natural resources, doesn't change anybody's EEZ or ECS. Uh, it's purely symbolic value. But when the Danes would visit, they would raise the Danish flag and leave a bottle of Danish schnapps. And when the Canadians would visit, they would raise their flag and leave a bottle of Canadian club. And this is as close as these countries get to escalating any of their claims with each other in terms of military force. And all that happened prior to 2007. Since 2005, neither has uh, visited the island. Okay, not the case in the mixed diet disputes. My mixed diet, I mean, at least one of the countries is either autocratic or resource dependent. So we don't have time to go through all of them, but we're going to put the, in each one of these uh, military force was used to essentially escalate the dispute. And by, by use, I mean deployed. And so here we're going to just focus on two of these, Svalbard and the Barents Sea EEZ. So the Barents Sea EEZ had to do with uh, an overlapping EEZ dispute. So if we zoom in, you can see that Norway claimed the equidistant line, which would get under international law. And the Russians made uh, a much more expansive claim that they claimed had historical precedent, but isn't really supported by international law. So this uh, dispute basically lay dormant for 40 years. But in 2007, Russia decided, okay, after the shock, let this territory suddenly become worth something. Let's open up negotiations. But at the same time they opened up negotiations, they also engaged in a lot of gun gunboat diplomacy against Norway. So they would deploy their aircraft carriers right next to Norwegian oil platforms and conduct uh, drills so that Norway couldn't uh, ferry people back and forth because the sky was essentially full filled with MiGs, hit one of the helicopters. They did things like fly their bombers right along the Norwegian coast. They dramatically increased these flights right after the shock. And they didn't just uh, fly along the coast. They would harass Norwegian bases by conducting mock bombing runs on Norway's Arctic bases. All of this is a sort of signal uh, to Norway that there's uh, a carrot and a stick here. Now, we don't know how powerful a role the stick played, but we do know that Russia gained essentially 87,000 square kilometers of seabed and maritime resources when they settled the dispute more than they would have received had they just settled the dispute using the international legal principle of uh, the equidistance principle. So this is essentially, they got half of what they originally claimed, but that was a lot more than they would have got had they just used international law. So next we'll focus on Svalbard. So Svalbard is a unique, strange place. It's uh, about as close as you can get to the North Pole. 
Uh, there's a picture I took when I was there of the Svalbard seed vault because there's two strange things about Svalbard. One is that the Norwegians maintain this seed vault, which you guys might have heard of, which is they keep all the seeds there uh, in case of global nuclear holocaust, they can repopulate the world's plant population. So countries all send them their seeds. Uh, but the second strange thing about Svalbard is much more germane to this talk is that uh, Svalbard is the only area of shared sovereignty in the world. So any country that signed the Spitsbergen Treaty of 1920 can put a research station there. And that's what I took a picture of when I was there, but they can also develop the natural resources on the island. So if you sign this treaty, Norway just administers the island, but technically it's an area of shared sovereignty. So that's a picture of an abandoned Russian mining camp from the Soviet era. I took about an eight hour boat ride up to go visit that and talk to some Russians up there who are very upset that Norway still gets to administer the island. But what they're really upset about is not the coal where they actually still have some camps mining that coal, but that's not that valuable. What's really valuable is the oil and gas in the 200 nautical miles offshore around Svalbard. Now the Norwegians claim that they have the sole right to develop these natural resources. Uh, but it's not obvious why that would be the case, considering that it's way beyond Norway's EEZ and technically Svalbard is an area of shared sovereignty. But they essentially maintain this legal fiction calling it a fishery protection zone, but everybody knows that's really about the oil and gas. And so Russia has disputed this and they sent, uh, they said that they should be able to develop that oil and gas as well. And they sent uh, destroyers and cruisers to essentially circle the island. Norway's responded in kind, uh, sending their coast guards, picture I took when I was there of that, their armed icebreakers and their Aegis frigates. But Russia more recently since Crimea has actually started to escalate this further. So this is a picture of Dmitry Rogozin who was the architect of Russia's Crimea strategy. And in 2015, he visited Svalbard unannounced, which you're not really supposed to do. You're also not supposed to deploy any military force there, which they then subsequent, Russia subsequently did. Uh, and I'll let you read that quote that Dmitry Gosen gave after he tweeted this photo of himself. So what's interesting about this is it doesn't just show like that Russia was actually interested in the Arctic, but this basically matches what they were saying in private. So if you look at WikiLeaks cables from 2010, this is what Dmitry Gosen had to say about the Arctic essentially that Russia viewed this as a fight for natural resources. They also say this in their strategic documents and that this was the future strategic resource base for Russia. Okay, so now that we've given you some of the process evidence, let's look a little bit at a descriptive statistical comparison. So uh, a bunch of really talented uh, undergraduates and graduate students worked for years to gather this data and they essentially coded three original data sets. First was icebreakers and ice-hardened warships. Uh, and so here we looked at icebreakers by country. And so this here's the number of icebreakers that each country had before the shock. And then we can compare it to the number of icebreakers that they built, announced, or so were under construction after the shock. Now let's, we can see that there's a larger increase for Russia than most of the other countries. Let's break this down by uh, tonnage. So again, so it's not just the number, Russia also built much larger ships in terms of the tonnage they built. Norway also increases, but they're a much smaller state. So in terms of the ability to actually increase it, is lower. Now, Canada said they were going to build a lot of these, but let's see if they actually fall through. So we looked at three categories. We looked at announced. So there's the Canadian prime minister actually announcing that those ships will be built, whether they are under construction. And we looked at where they actually got built. And if you look there, you can see that Russia is actually much more likely to follow through and actually building their ships, as is Norway. And, and commission post shocks, the light blue category. Whereas a lot of 
Canada's ships 10 years after the shock were still under construction or actually simply just announced, but not even under construction. Denmark ship numbers actually fall and the United States announces that it would build a new icebreaker just as the 10 year window was closing, but actually doesn't have any new ones built yet. Okay, now let's look at bases. So again, here's the number of bases each country had above the Arctic Circle. So that was the cutoff at the time of the shock. Here's what they had 10 years later in terms of uh, announced, upgraded, or built. So we'll look at this by category again, announced, under construction, and built. And again, you can see the Russians are much more likely to fall to on actually upgrading and reopening. So are the Norwegians. Now the Norwegian number of bases actually falls, but that's deceptive because what that is, is that's Norway closing a bunch of obsolete Cold War era bases and then making massive investments in upgrading some of their other bases. And so they actually have a lot more military presence and capability there now. And you can see the United States doesn't build any new ones. Canada announces like they're gonna build these large bases, but they actually really scaled those back and the upgrades were very small. Okay, the final category was by far the most labor intensive. So we looked at military action events because I didn't wanna rely on the correlates of war or the ICB data set because the ICB says there are zero events, which I know is wrong. And the correlates of war said there's only two events, which I also know is wrong. So we decided to do this ourselves because I didn't trust that data. So we went and used LexisNexis to gather 5,000 articles. So we get every article we could find that talked about any kind of Arctic military deployment at all. We found uh, 242 deployments and we coded each one of them. So every time a state deployed military force, we looked at the four, two and a half years before and two and a half years after, and that's the increase. And we also broke this down by category and I'll show you that. So we looked at within borders, so that would not be power projection, but just like exercises like the Canadian Rangers exercising on Canadian territory. Beyond borders, where they actually projected military force beyond their borders into the Arctic, whether they actually deployed to areas under dispute, and whether they deployed to the borders or harassed other countries that they had disputes with. And so again, you can see that Russia is not only much more likely to dramatically increase their power projection, so it's not just that they had a high level baseline, it's that they also project power beyond their borders and to disputed areas or to areas with they had disputes with other countries. And they were much more likely to do that after the shock uh, than other countries. Norway looks a little bit smaller here too, but one of the reasons for that is Norway's much more quiet about its deployment. So it's possible that our measure is missing that. In some of the field work I did interviewing uh, Norwegian journalists, they explained they're much less likely to broadcast because they don't want to essentially back themselves into a corner with Russia, but they want to let Russia know that they're there. They know the Russians will pick that up whereas Russia tends to broadcast their deployments a lot more. Okay, let's take one closer look at the data and look at just new tonnage and new bases, since that's what should matter most. So in terms of icebreakers, that's just new investments. So a new investment was made, say, 10 years before the shock. So this ship had to be built between 1997 and 2007 versus 2007 and 2017. And you can see that Russia built more, so does Norway. In terms of looking at bases, we can see the same thing. Russia up, makes larger upgrades, Norway does, than they did in the 10 years prior to the shock. Uh, the United States doesn't do very much and can just build a little bit. And Denmark doesn't make many new bases for changes at all before or after. Okay, so uh, I'll close briefly with the alternative explanations. So power, resources, and geography. So one alternative theory would be like, it's the countries that are most powerful that will project the most military power. But if that's the case, then the US should be high, but the US is low. One should say it's just about contestable resources. But if that's the case, then all states should go and project power because all states have the opportunity to go and grab these contestable resources, but only some do. And finally, one of the geography explanations, not all of them, uh, would be that it, Russia does a lot of this because it has a large EEZ. 
but Canada's EEZ is actually almost identical to Russia's EEZ. And so if it's, if it's all about EEZ, then Canada should be high, but Canada is actually low. And so that can't explain either. So none of these alternatives can do as good a job explaining the Arctic as uh, the theory that I presented in this paper can. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that other alternative explanations don't matter. We can talk about some of them in the Q&A, but that countries' economic dependence on natural resources probably played a strong role here. Now, you might say, like, look, this is just five countries, and you'd be right. That's not a very representative sample. So in some additional tests, we look at over 200 years of data, and we look at how economically dependent countries were on territory, and we find that they're much more likely to go compete over that territory. In another paper that was published in International Studies Quarterly, we developed a more nuanced measure that didn't just look at natural resource rents, but also looked at agriculture and went back 200 years as well. And, and again, we found that how land-oriented economy was had a much stronger effect than regime type or any other controls we used. And so this shows that this theory generalizes beyond the Arctic to explain when countries will be more willing to fight over economically valuable territory. Okay, uh, finally, I'll close what I think the contribution of the project is. So I think the key contribution of the project is a theory of the origins of states' interest over one particularly important issue, which is territory, and particularly economically valuable territory. So territory that has lots of natural resource rents or, or uh, other types of landlords like agriculture. And so we care about having a, a theory of interests because although interests don't explain anything, everything I should say, it's hard to explain anything without some theory of interest. Like without understanding a state's interest, you can't predict a state's objectives. And without understanding what objectives they're going to care about, it's really hard to anticipate what kind of foreign policy actions they're going to engage in. And so understanding a country's interests has important implications for understanding the future of great power competition or what great, rising great powers might want. And so what my theory suggests is that although China might project power for lots of other reasons, concerns that China is going to go and take lots of natural resources are probably overblown and that China is probably not going to have a strong preference to do this as Russia. Now, this is not to say that China doesn't care about natural resources. They clearly do. It's that they should have a weaker preference to go and take natural resources than if they were highly economically dependent on natural resources like, say, Russia. China's business model is not essentially to be a, a petrostate. China's business model is to produce goods and services. And so what they really care about is maintaining access to markets and sea lanes. And so to give you an idea of how successful they've been at that business model, think about the alternative colonial business model. So the most successful example is the British. And during the best 35 years, the British grew their economy at the height of the British Empire by 250% over 35 years. Not bad. Over the last 35 years, China has grown their economy by 2,500%. They did 10 times better than the British Empire ever did. And that would be assuming that all that growth in, the, in Britain at that time was the result of their colonies, which it wasn't. And China didn't have to conquer anybody that's not been their business model. Now, this isn't to say that China won't project military force for other reasons. They certainly will not certainly have an interest in shaping markets. It suggests that territory and natural resources haven't, won't probably be the primary way in which they do it. But it does suggest that we might want to be a little bit more concerned about countries like Iran, Russia, or Sudan, countries that are highly economically dependent on natural resource rents and autocratic. These countries predominantly exist in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa, 
And so my theory suggests that if the United States decides to pull back and the international community stops enforcing the norm against territorial aggrandizement, we might see a lot more militarized territorial conflict here because these countries are highly economically dependent on, on territorial natural resources and they should have a stronger preference for them. And finally, I'll talk about the political implications of climate change. So existing work has suggested that climate change is gonna cause resource scarcity and resource scarcity will cause conflict. But in the Arctic, climate change isn't causing scarcity, it's causing abundance. Is that actually gonna cause conflict? And I would say in order to answer that question, you really have to focus on states' interests and you've got to understand that what states make influences what they take. The United States pivots to Asia, not the Arctic. And the reason is that's where most of the money the United States cares about. Most of the wealth is about accessing markets in Asia, not grabbing natural resources in the Arctic. So what might make the U.S. care a lot more about the Arctic? Well, the U.S. is already starting to care more about the Arctic, but not for the natural resources, but because of the shipping lanes and protect U.S. allies. So if the Arctic really does become ice free and there really are major investments in shipping infrastructure, then the U.S. will probably start to care a lot more about projecting force to the Arctic. And it's already doing that. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, is going to double down on their strategy and that they're going to double down because they don't have a lot of good options. They spent 20 years underinvesting in human capital, intellectual property rights. They've lost a lot of their best engineers to Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv. And so they can't just turn a key and become a production oriented state. And so what they're hoping is that oil prices go back up. They lived through this in the 1990s. It worked out. They thought, we'll just hope this happens again. And they view the Arctic as their future strategic resource base. And they have continued to invest in both developing those natural resources and projecting military force there. So with that, I thank you for your time. And I'm excited to hear your guys' questions and comments. Wonderful. Uh, thanks very much, Jonathan. Uh, very interesting. Again, leaving us with a nice picture. There were nice pictures throughout. But I think for purposes of conversation, maybe we should stop sharing the slide. Oh, yeah, yeah. Get people's faces up. Um, so uh, I will uh, take people from the list. People are starting to raise their hands. That's terrific. Um, so when I call on you, uh, if you'll turn on your video, so that we can have the actual feeling of interaction. And I'll unmute you. You can stay unmuted until Jonathan finishes answering your question, which gives you the opportunity to have a little back and forth. And then when you're done and we move on to the next question, um, we'll take care of remuting you and calling on the next person and that person can then unmute. So that's kind of the procedure. Reminding you also, if you have a sudden urge to get in with a follow-up on somebody else's question, you can do the two-finger um, uh, maneuver, uh, which you should not use to jump the queue. But if you have a short question that's on point, feel free to give the thumbs up or send me a chat. And I will notice and I will put you in the um, queue for a two-finger uh, follow-up question. Um, and I've been filibustering a little bit while giving directions because I keep hoping that an undergraduate will uh, uh, raise a hand. And so now I'm gonna pressure an undergraduate. We've got another non-undergraduate joining the queue. <clears throat> would any undergraduate please like to ask the first question? I mean, if not, I can go to someone else, but I would like to give the opportunity. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push for this later, but um, uh, uh, let's start with Captain Procopius. 
Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, Captain Mark Pacobi is Professor of Naval Science uh, here at Notre Dame and, uh, and career submariner uh, by trade. So I'm going to, I have less questions than I have like com comments or pushback on some of your, uh, some of your data sets. Specifically, the U.S. submarine force, I think, is inherently Arctic capable because every single 688I has a hardened sail that's able to surface through the ice and every uh, Virginia class submarine similarly. So your data set of just looking at icebreakers, I think every Virginia class submarine that's been built since the beginning of the, since the basically the end of the Cold War is an Arctic capable platform that the U.S. uses to project power. Which you know, and again, you know, just as a quote from from my commander. You know, quote, the U.S. submarine force has been operating in the Arctic for decades. The submarine force is expected to play a key role in Arctic defense, end quote. You know, that's from Admiral Caudill in March of this year. And yes, we only do the biennial, uh, you know, ice X, if you will, where we go up and establish the ice camp and, and, and surface through the ice and, and do that. But the problem I think you're going to run into is every single submarine deployment is classified. And so you're not going to have the data of the power projection that is likely occurring in the Arctic because it's just not open for open source, uh, you know, data collection. But, uh, you know, anecdotally, I can say, having operated in the Arctic, you know, that stuff is going on that, that the public just doesn't know about, you know, and that, and that is, and that has to do with, you know, uh, the Russian undersea reconnaissance program, uh, you know, uh, assets that has to do with what we're doing up there. That has to do with the fact that every new submarine also has under ice sonar capability that can find the ice keels and, and navigate under ice and then find the, find the polynia and then surface, you know, if needed uh, or, or not. The, uh, the development of under ice uh, anti-submarine weapon capability and anti-surface weapon capability as we upgrade our torpedoes in order to do those types of things. So I think that there's a lot of power projection that is happening, but it's kind of happening behind the scenes, if you will. And, and, and the bottom line is I think every new submarine is, is Arctic capable, if you will, and capable of power projection. So those, again, no, no question, just, to, just, just comments and feedback, but thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Good paper. It was excellent. Excellent read. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm not sure how your workshop was. Should I uh, respond to this or? Okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, no, it's a great point. And it's actually, uh, I actually interviewed a number of submarine captains for the work and looking at this, they explained to me this exact phenomenon. The reason to not focus on submarines was not because I didn't think they were important, but because if you do that, most of, it'll actually bias it in favor of Russia because Russia makes massive investments in their submarine force, but you don't know if that's related to their nuclear deterrent or, their, or if it's related to other areas they want to project military force, because the assets aren't there to essentially demonstrate presence in the Arctic in terms of going and demonstrating a surface presence and uh, controlling natural resources. So that's not to say that those submarines wouldn't matter in any fight. They definitely would. It's also not to say that the United States doesn't have the capabilities to render the Arctic essentially void of life if they wanted to. They certainly could project a lot of military force there. My only claim has to do with for Arctic specific assets that are not dual use, which is why we focused on those. They're really quite Arctic specific. And in terms of looking at just the years immediately following the shock in terms of 
what did the United States prioritize? Did we create like an Arctic combatant command? Not really. When the, when the NRC did an independent report on US uh, Arctic capabilities in 2012, they said the US had basically lost the ability to conduct uh, surface warfare in the Arctic. And so like the US then made a lot more investments. There've been a lot more exercises, since, especially since Crimea. Uh, but in terms of making claims over national resources, that hasn't been the primary objective. Like I, I wanna be clear what my claims are. The U.S. cares about the Arctic, but mainly to protect its allies, not the natural resources. But I, t I completely take your point on the submarines. Great. Um, I'm still eager to have undergraduates. So I just want to remind everyone. Oh, no. Now I've got a, a, someone who's raised their hand under pressure. Um, and I don't know this person. So I don't know if you're an undergraduate. So... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna just dare to jump the queue and try it. So we'll have uh, Frederick Holtzgreff. Uh, yeah, I'm a freshman here at Notre Dame. I had a awesome. Then where you you were uh, a lot of your research uh, was revolved around oil prices, and you were using prices from the late 2000s, early 2010s, and they're much higher than they are today. Um, with oil costs like at a relatively all-time low and like just the expectation of a decreasing demand in the future uh how do you expect this to relate to the conflict in this area um do you think it's going to shift more towards uh access to trade routes or do you still expect russia to really be going for the oil and other natural resources in the area so so my hope is that oil prices obviously stay low and that people lose interest in competing with these natural resources uh I would only say that if you think you can predict oil prices really well, then uh, there's, some, there's some very lucrative job offers you could probably engage in after college. But so far, people have made predictions about this, but they predicting oil prices tends to be really, really difficult. Now, if you had to ask me, I'd say that I think you're right. Oil prices seem based off of the conventional wisdom to be heading down, looking like they're going to stay there. But people have said that before and oil prices came right back up. A lot depends on what demand looks like in the rest of the world. And a lot depends on whether we actually develop renewables that are cost effective and whether we actually regulate climate change. So there's a lot of unknowables in that. What the Russians are betting on is that essentially oil prices will go back up and this will be a worthwhile strategy. It remains to be seen whether that's the case, whether this is a worthwhile bet. Uh, this is simply what's reflected in their strategic documents, but also in terms of what their approach to essentially the region is. Okay. So you would say um, with, with U.S. barrels already costing like significantly more than say Russia, um, would you say this is also a reason for the U.S. not getting, not getting as engaged in the region as Russia? So you have to, I'm not sure I totally understand your question. Are you talking in terms of the fact that the cost of U.S. production is so much higher? Yeah, like, is that, would you say it's a reason for the U.S. not getting in as involved in the region? In that case, I don't think that's probably the prime driver for why the U.S. is less involved in the region, because they, what they would really be focused on is, well, what's the marginal cost of production in the Arctic, which right now, to be frank, would be like not cost effective with existing technologies and existing energy prices. What people are hoping and betting on is that the technology gets better and that demand gets higher. This is a fight over essentially the future rights to control these natural resources and to develop them. Right now, I don't think any of this stuff would actually be long-term profitable unless the technology gets a lot better. And so what okay. people want to do is to make sure they don't lose out on those opportunities 
to do so. But that does, and they saw that this was very profitable previously. That since sometimes new technologies come out that do make development a lot easier, fracking, for example, or deep sea drilling. But those technologies would have to get a lot better for this to essentially be viable in the short term, as long as energy prices are low. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, so next up, uh, we'll have Alana Rothkoff. Hey, thank you. This is um, a fantastic project. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to read it. Um, so it makes total sense for me that you select the universe of states that have the option of making international legal claims. And I thought it would be helpful just to hear a little bit more in the piece about these legal claims, particularly whether there's variation in legal pursuit of those claims that fits with the story that you're telling, such as how many disputes are there? Um, are all these states pursuing legal options at the same rate? Um, what are the strengths of these claims? Because I can imagine, for instance, states pursuing military options because they know their legal claims are weak. Like right. you talk about with the with respect to um, Norway's extra legal claims, um, and they've also have the recent mem recent ish memory of losing the Jan Mayen delimitation case with Denmark, right. um, and maybe states that have strong legal claims in their disputes are going to disputes are going to pursue the legal option because it's way cheaper. And I don't think addressing the legal disputes or, or at least talking about them a little bit more is in any way a contradiction of your argument about why they care so much about it in the first place and why they'd make such bold claims. But maybe it could help bolster the argument even more because uh, particularly if there's not a lot of variation in the rate at which they're pursuing claims or something that also is can help you out. And I think this is a little bit different than what you talk about in the appendix with respect to the counter argument about um, like what states have a legal right to in their EEZ in terms of the amount of resources. Yeah, no, that, that's a great comment. Thank you. Um, and that, that, that's a nice doable comment. Like that's something we can actually do. We can go look and see how strong are these claims from a legal basis. Thank you. Um, all right. Uh, thanks, Alana. That's great. You, you know, uh, uh, it's wonderful that you, that the result is yes, I'll go do that work. Um, very nice. Um, uh, Mike Dash. Hey, Jonathan. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us for the seminar. Uh, weather's probably nicer there in Southern California than it is I'll, here I'll in South you. Bend. I miss fall. It's, it was been like 90 degrees here until it's like this week. So uh, yeah, well, we had a great, we, we, we had a great fall, but it, would have been even more fun to have you come out, uh, not only to see the leaves, but uh, to, uh, you know, ha have the real seminar experience. I, I had a couple of uh, points I wanted to make. Um, Mark Procopius sort of preempted my first one. Uh, you know, I imagine there's a lot of subactivity going on uh, by the United States in the Arctic. Um, you know, he's right. Uh, it's going to be hard using your uh, data collection method to, uh, you know, keep track of it. Um, but, you know, I, I'm impressed with the fact that uh, a lot of the capability of the later generation of Los Angeles uh, class boats and now the Virginia class is optimized uh, for our Arctic activities. Now, so the question is, what do you do about that? Um, you know, I don't think you're going to get, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the data from the U.S. Navy about this. I guess, you know, maybe one way to uh, get a handle on it would be to 
figure out, um, you know, doctrinally what the Navy thinks it's going to be doing in the Arctic these days. During the Cold War, it was almost exclusively strategic ASW, you know, trying to attrit uh, Soviet uh, boomers. Of course, I don't know uh, how much patrolling Soviet boomers do anymore um, and, you know, how much of a target they are out under the ice as opposed to, uh, you know, just uh, in port where most of the Soviet submarine fleet, uh, at least the boomers, tend to spend a, a lot of time. Uh, I guess if we're still talking about strategic ASW uh, as a mission for the fast attack boats, um, you know, then you can probably discount the, uh, the other missions. On the other hand, if that's not as big as it once was, you know, during the uh, maritime strategy period, you know, then I think you've got a problem. Right. Um, the, the related thing is um, to say conventional uh, U.S. sub-operations are tied to protection of allies is reasonable. But, you know, again, our major ally there, Norway, uh, needs our help because, as you point out, it's all about sort of resource control. Um, so I'm not sure that gives you as clean a fix as Alana gave you in terms of her question. But, you know, it occurs to me you got to do uh, more with this. And, right. you know, maybe that's uh, one way to uh, to get around it. Um, well, like your suggestion on the doc, looking at the doctrines, that's something we can definitely do. OK, so on your uh, process evidence, I was sort of wondering why you didn't have a case uh, of a country that's not resource dependent, uh, you know, and show that in fact the uh, decision making process, and again, I know it's hard because, you know, it's a, you're trying to process trace a negative, right. um, but, you know, to, to demonstrate that they're not worried uh, about uh, oil in the way that uh, a uh, resource dependent country uh, like Norway or Russia is, um, you know, I think having two resource dependent countries, even though you do have some variation, um, I'm not sure, you know, makes the big case you want to make, which is uh, about, you know, the rent seeking uh, uh, proclivities for countries dependent on uh, uh, fossil fuel resources. Right. The, the, the last question I wanted to raise, um, I, I want you to be right about China um, not being aggressive for resource reasons. And, you know, they're not going to be like uh, Norway and uh, Russia because, you know, they're not a big fossil fuel producing state. Um, but they, they are heavily dependent um, on imported Yes. Uh, fossil fuel and other resources. Um, and so, you know, do you need to moderate your claim and say, well, they're not going to be uh, trying to, uh, you know, project power for, uh, you know, resource rent garnering, but they might be because they're vulnerable uh, or dependent in a negative way uh, on resource uh, imports. Um, and uh, I hope you figure that out, because, again, 
you know, I, I don't, I, I want to see the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, China hawk position uh, thoroughly interrogated, uh, but I'm not sure that your offhand comment at the end of the uh, uh, presentation about China fully reassured me. Sure. So on the China point, and these are all great points, and, th and thank you for the feedback on the paper. Uh, what I should have, I should have done a better job of saying, and this is what the puzzle is in the beginning of why might countries want to go get natural resources, not as a source of inputs, but essentially as a source of profits, and as in like in a world in which you can buy the natural resources, and that assumes that you can buy them then why would you still have a preference to go and control them as a source of profits and then go and sell them? If China can't buy those resources, then all bets are off. And that all countries will have a strong interest in securing natural resources and input. They need them for their economies and they need them for national security reasons. Uh, but in a world in which you have secure access is what my theory is talking about in terms of saying you can get access to these natural resources. You can get them at a, a reasonable, stable price why might you still have a strong preference to go capture these as a source of profits? And so this, when I say that I don't think that when China's looking for profits in the world, it's not that they won't like natural resources. Any country will, all countries like natural resource rents, all countries like profits. It's that, will they have a stronger preference or a weaker preference than say Russia for it? And my claim is that they're going to have a weaker preference than the Russians will have it for it. But look, any state, if the costs are low enough, I think would prefer to have profits to no profits. The real question is whether you, there's always an opportunity cost to what you invest in and what, what means you use to go seek profits. Is the best strategy to go and try to secure natural resource rents or is it to do something else? And my claim is I think the Chinese will probably project power for other objectives. I don't think as long as they can secure natural resources as an input that it'll be the, the business model will be going, taking lots of territory and, and extracting natural resource rents. Yeah. That and that's the key qualification. And, you know, then it raises uh, the, you know, the question of how confident and what factors would affect Chinese confidence about their continuing availability to meet their needs by buying as opposed to, you know, some alternative uh, approach that's more coercive. And to be clear, I think they are concerned, about, very concerned about that, as most, I think most countries do think about that. And there's some smart people in the audience who have written some things about this as to why they should be. And so this is only trying to explain, well, the liberal mar free market position has been, look, as long as countries can buy these things, they won't want them. They'll always prefer to trade rather than take. And like, I don't know why that's true. Certain countries still seem like they want to take them here's why certain countries might have a stronger preference in doing so. Um, that's the objective. That, but I should do a better job, both in the paper and the talk, of making sure that that qualification, that qualification is clearer. So thanks for helping to motivate that. Did you want to say other things about other things that Mike said besides China? Oh. Or? Yeah, we can go back to that. I just didn't want to monopolize, uh, monopolize the entire talking time because I figured other people have questions. That's true. There is a queue. So, you know, but Mike yeah, probably but, also wants an answer to some of his other questions. Sure. Mike, you want to talk about that maybe during the uh, di during dinner? Uh, or I'm yeah, sure. Uh, I, I don't know what the queue looks like, but uh, you and I will have more time. So, uh, you know, please okay. uh, feel free to uh, respond or not. 
All right, onward we go. Uh, uh, Dan Lindley. Hey there, thank you very much for a very fun uh, topical, hot topic even I might say, um, increasingly hot anyway. So I haven't read the book and I've only seen the paper. My basic question is how transportable is this theory outside of power vacuums? Um, power vacuums is something just simply convenient for you methodologically. Is this something of a precondition for the theories, you know, to invite competition? Um, what's going on with that? Can you think of other cases where this might be true? Say, for example, Iraq looking at Kuwait, thinking power vacuum based on the power differential, any cases in Africa, uh, South China Sea, potentially China looks at it that way. But, you know, from what you said, it sounds like that's not a case in your favor, that China's not looking at it from the point of view that your theory would explain. It's, it's acting for other reasons. So I'm just wondering how transportable is your theory? Um, and if you have notional cases where it does operate, um, that kind of thing. Sure. So in terms of how generalizable is the theory, I think the theory is about preferences, right, or interests. And so states don't always get the opportunity. When you, when you say power vacuum, I'm assuming what you're talking about is an opportunity to actually act on their preferences. The, yeah, that's good enough. Okay. So that to me is, is a level essentially beyond what the theory is goal is. The goal of the theory is to develop a, why states have a stronger preference for this. And then from a research design perspective, then we can go look at times in which they have an opportunity to act on those preferences. And I think it's important to focus on the preferences because lots of times countries don't get the opportunity to act on their preferences and then suddenly do. And if we don't focus on understanding what states type or interests are ex ante, as in before that opportunity occurs, we won't be able to predict how they're going to behave when some opportunity occurs. So that's why the theory as it is now focuses just on the preference aspect. If you're asking about like uh, cases in which there's other opportunities in which states could have acted, one of the cases that we looked at was essentially a, a set of cases of dogs that didn't bark. So this is brief, this is only mentioned as a mini case in the uh, book, but it's in my dissertation, I looked at the North Sea. And the North Sea was a case in which resources are exogenously and rapidly exposed but you have only very production-oriented democracies bordering the natural resources. And in none of those cases did states project military force in their disputes. They were all handled purely through the confines of international law. So that's a case in which you might expect if interests don't matter and that states are all gonna behave, uh, just opportunity is the only thing that's important, that the country should probably went and gone and compete over those natural resources. The fact that we don't suggest that type or preference matters. Uh, in terms of looking at other countries like Iraq, those are interesting cases to consider. I think that, that the theory definitely will apply to that. And the theory is just like, look, this is a country that should definitely have a strong preference for taking additional territory and resources. I think they, they got the opportunity to act on their preference there. And that's actually what we got to observe. That's not a case I look at in this work. I, I actually do look at it in a different article that was just published in Iowa with Andrew Coe. And, and we look at whether it would have paid to take uh, Kuwait's natural resources at all. Um, but in terms of your question about, look, does this generalize? I think it does. I think that's what a lot of the quantitative tests are looking at. If you wanted to have 
a, a second theory about when will states have the greatest opportunity to do this? To me, that sounds like a fascinating question. It's kind of what I'd like to pursue in future work. But first, I want to just say, like, okay, first, can I start with, can we ascertain ex ante what are states' preferences? And then can we use that to make predictions about when there was an opportunity? You know, hopefully we won't get that kind of power vacuum or shock, but we very well might. And that's why I ended the, the talk with the comment that if the international community stops enforcing a norm against territorial aggrandizement, then you might think that territorial conflict is over, but you might really rapidly figure out that no, it's not. The countries still actually do have a strong preference for this. And when there is a vacuum, you might be much more likely to see conflict in places like the Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa. The theory was just you'd be less likely to observe it in places with say only production oriented democracies. So the fact that the US wasn't enforcing the norm wouldn't then say ignite a competition from North Sea oil and gas today, but it might do so in other regions where there are more countries that would have a stronger preference for territory and natural resources. Well, thank you very much, appreciate it. Thanks for the question. So Ben Dennison has a two finger and depending what it is, I might want one too. Great. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, I was thinking about this as um, like the old SNL sketch as an unfrozen caveman reviewer too, um, thinking through this. Uh, and Dan's point that you brought up, you're saying that the, your you need to know your preferences ex ante uh, rather than kind of the outcomes. And I'm, your response to that, um, I'm trying to think how to phrase this the best way. Uh, but in my mind, it seems like the way you're talking about preferences, it's kind of like once the shock happened, uh, then you could kind of, your the way you're talking about it is that the, the preference is revealed uh, through whether or not they vote it up. But it seems like, to Dan's point uh, that he just made, um, the preference is already taken into account. Kind of, they might not know. Uh, what's the for this? We the preference might not be taking the vacuum that he talked about into account to begin with. It could be like, we. it's not that necessarily we have a preference to take things versus preference to buy things. It might be, we have a preference to take things given this power vacuum is there or given that this is the cost it's gonna be uh, to take things versus gonna be to buy things. And so I'm not so sure that the preference, when you're talking about external validity, at least outside of the Arctic uh, scenario, um, the pre that's where like the, the shocks that he's talking about or the power vacuums that emerge might matter in that even the states themselves might not, because they're not thinking, because you, you made the point that it was so shocking that the Arctic, uh, you know, quickly in terms of preferences, it's kind of a, so it's less of a revealed preference and more of a, oh, this calculation, we can update it very quickly and go. Um, I might not have phrased that properly, but it's kind of, I'm not so sure you can, I know in like a strict rational sense, it's good to keep like the outcome and the preference separate, but I'm not sure in this case, that we can do that quite as much, uh, given kind of how um, rare are this comparing to other different cases. I'm not phrasing that very well, but hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, let me see if I can take a stab at answering yeah. or, or the question you're asking. I think what you're asking is, look, Preferences are important, but it's also going to matter essentially like what this cost us and what, what the benefits are. Uh, so essentially, if certain factors like military technology or high oil prices change that cost benefit calculus, then you might see even countries that look like they should have a weak preference acting on those preferences. Yeah. Or, you know, what we think of as like firm preferences that can, can change very quickly overnight with the shocks that you're talking about. And it's kind of 
the outcome and the preference uh, might not be able to be ex ante known as much as we would like to. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, the whole point of this project was yeah. can we figure out ex ante based on observable indicators, what types of states should have a stronger preference for territory before such an opportunity comes up. Uh, but I don't think it's I guess, at all- I, I guess what I, just very quickly, do the states themselves know that they have that preference even before that opportunity comes up? That's what I'm, that's, what, that's the best way to say it. Does, did Russia itself know it had this preference before uh, or in a situation where there is not a power vacuum, uh, do you know that there is going to be this preference before the vacuum emerges? So it's a good question. I think that clearly strategic opportunities can also alter preferences. Mm -hmm. But I would think that, yeah, the states essentially would have these preferences. Like I think, for example, I think Saddam Hussein's Iraq knows that he values oil and gas. And essentially were an opportunity to come up in which the United States says, we're no longer enforcing this norm and we're no longer, uh, we're pulling out of the region that he would then know, yes, I have an interest in this. This cost is dramatically lowered to engage in this type of behavior. And now I more likely to probably engage in it. So yeah, I think countries probably do have an idea or at least some idea of what essentially what their interests are, whether it's cost effective to actually act on those interests is gonna be obviously dependent on what strategic opportunities exist. Uh, it's sort of like saying, look, I know I have a preference for Lamborghinis, but I'm an assistant professor. So, you know, if some amazing exogenous shock occurred and I suddenly won the lottery, then you might see me acting on my preference for Lamborghinis. But until we do, all I know is I like Lamborghinis, but I might not be that also willing to admit that until I actually have the money to go buy one. Okay. Thanks, but thanks for the question. Yeah. Yep. Oh, so I'm gonna, there's a couple more people on the list. So I'm gonna hold myself in abeyance and um, uh, we'll go to Dan Jacobs. Oh, do I? You're just okay. I okay. Sorry, sorry. I'm pressing buttons here. Um, so interesting project. I think the natural experiment is really creative. Um, but I'm going to pick up on a few of the points uh, that have been made um, because I'm still confused about how states are actually valuing these resources in the Arctic. So you talk. We've gone back back and forth about preferences, objectives, et cetera. But states value the resources for regime stability or because they need them to produce military for all sorts of different reasons. Um, so I, want, it, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out from a, sort of just a rational point of view, why Russia, it seems that Russia and Norway are choosing to do the wrong thing here, that the resources in the Arctic are theoretical um, in the sense that we don't know how much is there, what it's going to cost to extract, when that is going to happen, and then what the production value of a unit of gas or oil actually is. And then, you know, at the end, you talk about how well, We'll have resource abundance in the Arctic, which I think is really interesting, not resource scarcity. Well, if we have resource abundance, that should make it um, 
you know, that'll flood the market with oil. Prices will go down, assuming demand stays the same, not even, and setting that sets aside whether or not we, um, you know, move towards renewable energies. So I'm just wondering, is, are Russia and Norway making a mistake um, or not? Um, and if they aren't making a mistake, what, what is it that they're, it, do, do they have some long-term goal in mind here that compensates for the fact that they don't know whether any of these expenditures are going to have a long-term payoff? Sure. So the short answer is it's very difficult to know ex ante, sort of like it was very difficult to know 20 years ago whether Amazon's strategy was just they were making all the wrong moves and this was never going to work and they hadn't been generating profits until you actually see that actually Amazon had made all the right moves and it all worked out. These things are highly uncertain. And so ex ante, it's very difficult to ascertain are they making a mistake or not. I think you could make a pretty compelling argument that, that what's best for Russia's ruling coalition is probably not what's best for Russia's general population. Uh, and it's probably less the case in the case of Norway, where Norway's done a much better job of spending their oil money, storing their oil money, and actually using it to invest in public goods that help the rest of the population. They've also invested more in transitioning off of oil, but that transition can't happen as rapidly as they would like it, because they can't have the turn of a key. In the case of Russia, it seems to me that they went down a path 20 years ago, and this is part of the path dependency of the argument, in which they essentially made, they bet big on oil and gas. And they had tried essentially what they thought was free market capitalism. It didn't work out very well. And they then decided to not invest as much in education, not invest as much in intellectual property rights. And so when they tried to build, build a Silicon Valley, shocker, it didn't work out. You can't just do one you know, on, on a dime. Like you've lost those good engineers. They went to Silicon Valley. You have if Russia were to do this today, they would have to tell their people, look, we're going to make a big investment in intellectual property and human capital. You might not see the returns for that from their decade or two, but when it happens, it'll be a lot better than if we stay on oil. But that's pretty hard for any regime to do because you've got to tell your elites who are counting on that income, look, you're not going to get income today. And worse, the investments we're making might empower a political opposition that can then remove us from power. It seems to me that what the Russian, Russia's coalition essentially made a decision that this was going to be the best thing for the coalition. And I don't think they saw another way in which it would have been easy to stay in power by investing in a more production-oriented economy like China did. I think that they, they'll do it as long as they can maintain total control over it, which is what they tried to do when they created the Silicon Valley. And this is what the chapter in the book on Russia talks a lot about is when they do try to transition off land rents, they try to do it in a way that is not very conducive to producing that type of economy. It's, 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 they don't invest in a lot of intellectual property rights and they try to make sure that the party controls everything. Now the Chinese have had some success with that, but there aren't a ton of regimes that I've seen that have been as successful as China in terms of investing in a production oriented economy and definitely getting to stay in power. And it seems to me the Chinese are very good at this, but they're also very worried about it. And this is one of the reasons why they worry about, say, a Jack Ma becoming too powerful. It's one of the reasons why Chinese billionaires die for accidental reasons at a disproportionate rate. You know, they're worried about outsourced sources of power. So in terms of is this a mistake or not, it depends on for the state or for the ruling coalition. For Russia, 
this seems to have worked out relatively well for that ruling coalition in terms of getting to stay in power and, and making sure that they can control all the income within the state. Is it good for the Russian people? Doesn't seem like it, but the Russian coalition is the ones who get to determine what the national interest is. Whether this is a good idea for Norway or not depends a lot on what oil prices do in the future. And that I wish I could predict. Right now, it doesn't seem like a very good strategy, but you could have said the same thing in the 1990s when oil prices were low and Norway was continuing to invest in developing offshore oil. And man, has that bet worked out for them. I mean, I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in Norway, but it's one of the few countries that when I visit it and I come back to the United States, I'm like, man, this country is, my country is poor compared to this country. Like the infrastructure is terrible. The airports don't work here. You know, their infrastructure, their public education, their social safety, and it's all based off of those investments they made in the 1990s when oil prices were low. And so it's, it's hard to tell ex ante whether that's the right call or not. If, if I had to bet today, I'd say I'd shift off oil. That would be my personal bet. But I could right, just but, be wrong. Right. But that, that's, yeah, I just push, push back briefly. I mean, that's sort of the point, right, is that you have these options as a regime type, whatever the regime, you have these options. Do I go for rents? So yep. do I produce wealth just by not creating any wealth? Or do I produce wealth by long-term investment? And that seems to be a prior choice to where your theory starts. That's right. Okay. And, and essentially, were there more space? And I could talk essentially in a longer talk about the theory. There's a whole chapter in the book. The prior choice is this path-dependent choice. Like, did okay. you go down this path? If you go down that path, then it's much, much harder to change. And it's not that it's undoable. It's a, it requires a population that's willing to bear those costs, or at least a governing coalition that's willing to bear those costs while you transition. And I think this is one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia has been saying they're going to transition off of oil for the last 40 years, yeah. when I see it. Okay, thanks. So I'd just say, as I understand it, this is the Marxist claim, right? That like somewhere enough capital comes that it's time to transition to socialism. He thought it was going to come through what you're talking about, productive capitalist investment and capital accumulation. But if you just want money to enable socialism, it could just come from extracting resource rents. And eventually you could just have enough money that it's time for socialism, right? The, the source of the rents doesn't matter. It's how much accumulation you've had and, you know, which is the right path to accumulate enough. Eh. I don't know, just strikes me as, as an interesting interchange that you guys are having. You're having the supposition that the only way to have productive accumulation is to produce rents for a while and then maybe somehow trans transfer them to a production-oriented economy. But there's nothing important about production, right? It's about capital. And uh, in any event, um, my just quick interjection on that interaction, uh, not one of my questions, Alec is going to get the last question of the day. Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. So uh, I guess sticking with the, the regime type, um, uh, I guess, thing, uh, my question is I, I'm, I'm still confused about what role regime type actually plays in explaining the puzzle of like why they project power because it seems like all the action that you know and the evidence that you present can be explained by mere uh, resource dependent as like rents as percentage of GDP. 
Um, you know, it, it's to me, the story is not that Norway projects less power because it's democracy. It's just because it can't project less or any more power. It can't compete with Russia in that regard. Uh, so that was one thing I was just, I was confused on. And if uh, you could either elaborate that or, or what. No, it's a great question. And in, in this particular case, I think you're right, which is why in the paper version of this, you don't see regime type, both because there's not space for it, but also because in the Arctic case, you can, you can't tell that difference as you put between say Russia and Norway. Now, the reason I include regime type in the theory is I think it would be insane to say like, look how narrow or representative the coalition is doesn't have any impact on how much the state wants territory. I don't think that's correct. And so when we, and when we look at this uh, in other tests, we find that, that matters, but it actually matters a lot less than what the structure of the economy is. In fact, when we ran this with several hundred models, we found that actually regime type played a much smaller role than uh, natural resource rents. That said, I think it would be, I think regime type probably still plays a role. And I think it also plays a role in terms of how easy it is for the country to transition off of natural resource rents. I think that autocratic regimes are particularly reticent to give up those political benefits associated with the land rents for the very reasons I talked about, which is that you're then switching over to a, a type of economy that's fundamentally harder to monitor in which the income can flow to a political opposition. And that works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it often ends really badly for the regime. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I won't argue with you on that. I was just curious, you know, what it does in actually explaining. In that particular case, I think you're right. Like, I think it would, I think it would be wrong to tell the story about Russia without talking about its domestic political institutions. Like, a, and so I think, I think that, did, that does play a role in why Russia then doesn't just go like, well, why don't we just transition to a different type of economy? Uh, but well, that, oh, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. Well, if that's the case, then you know, definitely in the in your process tracing, like I think that would need to be shown. Um, yeah, because you know, as it stands, I just I didn't catch that as much. Does this just be a plug for the book? If you okay. go and read the chapter on Russia, no, no, I, I've already downloaded it. So, okay. awesome, yeah. fantastic. Well, I look forward to your reactions to to that chapter. Thank you. Okay, um, we are very close to the witching hour and the queue is empty. So this came together very nicely. If an undergraduate has a quick question, I would be happy to entertain it. Going once, twice. All right. Uh, I wanna thank Jonathan for a terrific and interesting talk, stimulated a very interesting conversation. Um, and thank you all for uh, uh, joining us. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, Jonathan wasn't here in person, but we can all give him a virtual round of applause. And I look forward to seeing all of you and all of your friends next week for Lindsay O'Rourke's uh, NDISC talk. So thank you all and uh, have a good week. Yeah, and thank you everyone. That was a lot of fun and a lot of good questions and comments. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc.
Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.